0: sleep is something that utterly underpins our mood, um, our memories, our ability to focus, our immune system, our cardiovascular system. I mean, it's, it's everywhere.
1: Welcome to The Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas Global Ambassador and Entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers, and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines, and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, The Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by a doctor and sleep scientist who is on a mission to educate us on the importance of sleep for health and well-being. In 2013, she completed a PhD that explored the link between work stress, well-being and cardiovascular disease, and this subsequently led to an interest in apps and digital medicine. We met earlier this year when we were both invited to speak on a panel at Women's Health Live. Hearing her speak about the science of sleep, I knew that I had to invite her to be a guest on the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Sophie Bostock. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, thank you. And also my listeners and Instagram followers are also really happy to have you here. I put out a question yesterday saying, you know, I'm going to be doing an episode about sleep and the amount of people that commented, I was blown away and actually DMs as well. Some people sent me really long, detailed messages um, with questions for you. So brilliant. hopefully we can get to them, or most of them, but yeah, we've got loads to get through today. Um, But first off, I guess before we get into all of that I think I'd just love to know really like as a doctor why did you want to specialize in sleep?
0: Well I guess my uh, my medicine career is not um, entirely conventional so um, I'm actually a medical school dropout. Um, I do have a PhD. I really was fascinated with science and I really wanted to help people so off I went to medical school and I I really enjoyed it but then when I got into the fourth year and were in hospitals I found that I was not very well equipped for the stresses and strains and the emotions of trying to help people who are really really sick and I think my first experience with not sleeping well was actually at medical school and I I ended up dropping out in the fourth year. I thought oh, you know this, this how can my life be sort of so... Um, difficult, given the, the environment that I'm in. I'm, I'm all about helping people. Something's going wrong. What can I do? So I left medicine and I did a whole bunch of other jobs. And I realized that what I did during the day had such a massive impact on how I felt and my capacity to help other people. Um, and ultimately, I ended up going back to university and I discovered this field called psychobiology, which is all about the interactions between how we feel and how we behave and the actual direct impact on our physiology and sleep is something that utterly underpins our mood, um, our memories, our ability to focus, our immune system, our cardiovascular system. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's like this foundation for good health. Um, so if you can crack good sleep, you are putting yourself in the best possible position to live well. Um, so this, this kind of PhD, I got really excited about sleep. And then I spent the last five years with a, a digital medicine company called Sleepio, which um, has a program which helps people sleep. Um, and and now I'm genuinely on a mission. There's so much new science coming out um, about not just sleep, but also these circadian rhythms, this kind of internal body clock we have. Um, and there's there's so much new information, but it's not really being disseminated that well uh, into the public domain. So so that's why I'm here.
1: Yes, amazing. I'm literally nodding along <laughs> to all of this because I've read a lot about it. I've listened to, I think, just my own personal reasons but I've yeah done a lot of I guess research you could call it into into sleep into as you said the circadian rhythms what affects those things things like diet caffeine activity levels so yeah we've got to get into it all so as you mentioned though in the last few years the conversation around sleep has become more popular and especially within the wellness space you know people I think before just used to consider okay exercise and diet and that was kind of the factors for measuring health you know within within wellness but now we're considering you know stress, human connection, sleep, uh, along a lot of other things as well. So why do you think we're now shining the spotlight on sleep? I do think it has a lot to do with the science. I mean, when you
0: look, if you do a quick Google on kind of uh, sleep research or sleep medicine, there's just kind of this exponential growth in the number of studies which have been published. And of course, people are becoming more uh, more like their own sleep scientists now. Lots of people are wearing sleep trackers. It's easier to kind of make conscious this behaviour, which is essentially unconscious. Um, and there, I think, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we just thought about sleep as a time for rest and not really realizing that you you lift the lid and the brain is phenomenally active during sleep. So dream sleep in particular, it's just as metabolically active as it is when we're awake. There is a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, And I think the fascination with being able to understand and see a little bit more what's happening in the brain, so particularly around memory formation, has really kind of driven an an interest in in understanding this, this lever that we can use to help ourselves feel good and function well.
1: Yeah. Great. And do you think there's a bit of like a a supply and demand kind of thing going on? Because I feel like, do you know what I mean? Like in terms of our lifestyles right now, I feel like everything in the world right now seems to be working against us when it comes to sleep. So back in the day, as you said, people probably thought sleep is for rest and they went to sleep and that was it. Whereas now I feel like whether it's TV, whether it's the blue light smartphones, whether it's caffeine, sugar, even just socializing, I feel like as someone who goes to bed very early and rises very early, I feel like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't encourage a very active social life and even people that want to meet for dinner and eat late. So why is the world going so much in this direction of like anti-sleep? And Is that why we're all now being like, we need sleep? Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, um, I think, uh, you
0: know, a few years ago, this this term, the obesogenic environment was was kind of coined, you know, people notice that if there's fast food on every street corner and uh, not a lot of green space, then it's not surprising that people are gaining weight because they're uh, lifestyles are changing as a result of the environment. But I think we are now absolutely in this kind of sleepless environment. Um, we have technology everywhere. We are living in a very interconnected world. 24 seven, you can speak probably to a friend on the other side of the world who's gonna be awake. Uh, somebody is probably DMing you at any time of day or night. Um, the temptation is always to, uh, you know, we wanna live life to the full, not realizing that if we sacrifice our sleep, our ability to to enjoy those precious moments is going to be um, hampered. Um, So, yeah, we have a huge number of barriers. I think there's a coffee shop on every street corner. Um, We are typically less active than we were, much more sedentary lifestyles. Um, The technology that that we use, you know, the the designers of uh, computers, iPhones, iPads, they know that having light in this blue wavelength sends a very strong signal to our brains to be alert. Um, going out into the midday sun uh, is what they have tried to mimic with the, the screens, the light from screens. Um, so that makes you feel good and helps you focus. But unfortunately, if you experience that at 9, 10 o'clock at
1: night, then it is definitely going to interfere with your sleep. Yeah. So we know what things are affecting our sleep, but what can we do about it? So as like a 101 for sleep, why should we even be prioritizing sleep? Why is it so important? <sighs> um, where does he, where do he start? Look, everybody wants to feel good. And there is an
0: absolutely uh, bi-directional relationship between mood and sleep. If you feel good, the chances are you're going to sleep well. And if you sleep well, you're going to feel better the next day. So you can easily get into this kind of positive cycle. But of course, the converse is true. Um, and so stress, anxiety really interferes with sleep. Um, and so I think one, one thing that I must say at some point in this podcast is that if you are anxious about sleep, cut yourself some slack. I'm going to say things today which suggest that sleep is super important, but the more that you worry about it, the harder it's going to be to find. So just remember that there is a lot of natural variation in sleep. We are designed as human beings to be able to cope with temporary sleep challenges. Uh, I always kind of speak to parents who are at their wits end and I'm like, look, as, as a species, we would not have been able to evolve if we weren't able to cope with periods of months when we actually really don't sleep well. But you also know those short term effects. We're not able to focus, we are are less good at remembering things, our moods are skew we're much more vulnerable to infection, so much more likely to get uh, coughs and colds and so on. Um, And in the long term, this kind of stress on our body of staying awake at the wrong times or not getting enough sleep increases your risk of diabetes, uh, of weight gain heart disease, stroke. And there's emerging evidence that suggests that um, a lack of sleep and circadian disruption uh, increases your risk of cognitive decline. So things like dementia and Alzheimer's. So the impacts are serious, Mm. but at the same time,
1: don't panic. panic. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is something it's great that you said that so early on, because I know that for anyone who does suffer with poor sleep or is in that right now, it can be, as you said, such a vicious cycle of being like I'm stressed because I know I need to sleep and then that stress causes me not to sleep and as you said when you read books or listen to podcasts that talk about you know sleep um in in correlation with disease with aging with you know all these different things you just panic because you think well especially for shift workers actually I think that's something that comes up quite a lot so I'm glad that you said that but also for people who perhaps the sleep deprivation is you know people perhaps wouldn't say it's volunt- voluntary but it is you know what I mean it's watching more one more episode of we tv have a choice. yeah it's yeah. like watching one more episode or it's like um maybe thinking oh I don't need that much sleep you know people say that sometimes they're like oh I don't need that much sleep but then they might drink three or four coffees every day so if you do have a choice and you can what's the kind of what should we be aiming for okay so there was a, a big massive study which reviewed all the science and came up with
0: a consensus among sleep experts that the recommended number of hours sleep for adults is between seven and nine hours each night now there is natural variation there are people who have a kind of short sleeping gene but we think that's fewer than one percent of the population so it's pretty unlikely if your parents are kind of seem to function very well on five or six hours sleep it might be that you are one of those people but so how do you know I mean if you are going to sleep when your eyelids start to feel tired you're kind of naturally sleepy and you're able to uh, wake up feeling refreshed early in the morning or whatever time of day it is and you're not using caffeine to pep you up through the day you're not having a nap through the day then the chances are that you're probably getting enough sleep Um, but a sleep diary can be really helpful if you kind of write down for a couple of weeks you know what time you're going to sleep what time you're waking up um and you can kind of start to understand what's your natural sleep window um I, I, people often say, uh, "But I, I, I can't possibly wake up without an alarm. I'd keep sleeping, you know, for hours." Because at the weekend, I really sleep in, and that is a really strong indicator that you are sleep deprived during the week if you're having to play catch up at weekends. Um, and that's not a really helpful uh, pattern for your body. Um, we usually call that social jet lag, where effectively come Monday morning, you are putting your body in this situation as if it's kind of flown back from Tel Aviv or something and your, your body clocks are going to be out of sync with the environment. So ideally, you don't want more of a variation than about an hour or so from one day to the next. Oh, really? So it's and not a case for, yeah,
1: for people that wake up early in the week. Like you said, sleeping in for maybe three or four hours longer at the weekend is not really what you'd recommend. I
0: mean, if you're, if you're short of sleep, pay back that sleep debt. But the ideal thing would be get that sleep during the week so that you
1: don't have to play catch up. Mm, More consistency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So (laughs) you mentioned then about if you're going to sleep when your eyes are closing. So often people will say to me, because I do go to bed early, oh, if I got into bed at that time, I wouldn't be able to fall asleep. And so often people say to me that when they get into bed, they lay down, their head hits the pillow and they're asleep within 60 seconds. Whereas I get into bed and yeah, I don't fall asleep straight away, but I might you know just I don't know lay there think whatever maybe talk to my husband if he he does fall asleep quite quickly actually but is the is one better than the other you know is it better to get into bed and as you you know your eyes shut you fall straight to sleep or if you get into bed you know and it takes you 20 minutes to fall asleep is that gonna you know what do you think totally normal for it to take 15 minutes to fall asleep um more than half an hour and
0: maybe it suggests that either you're sleeping at the wrong time or there's something actually interfering with your ability to go to sleep um but for those people who can literally fall asleep at the drop of a hat that's usually seen as an indication of sleep deprivation so if you are falling (laughs) you are totally exhausted Uh, so we have this thing called a a sleep drive so your sleep is controlled by two main processes one of them is your internal rhythm your body clock which is influenced heavily by light which I'm sure we'll talk more about Mm -hmm. and the second one is your sleep drive so the longer that you have been awake the stronger your drive for sleep Um, and if you have been trying to dodge your your sleep drive by kind of compressing your sleep, and making it really, really short. Then this sleep drive is actually a waste product called adenosine that builds up in the brain. It just puts you under increasing pressure to the point that you cannot keep your eyes open. And and caffeine is something which temporarily masks that effect. So it muscles in on the adenosine receptors and says, "Yep, no, this person is not drowsy." But as soon as the caffeine falls away, you've then got this. Build up of adenosine and you get this caffeine crash um, which can
1: kind of lead to total exhaustion unless
0: of course you reach for another cup of coffee so people get stuck in this sort of cycle
1: yikes okay yeah I try to stay away from the coffee as much as possible I do love the taste I love the smell but I don't love the effects so yeah most of the time I'm actually caffeine free which again surprises people when they're like what you get a Berlin Um, but we've talked a little bit about the 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 amount of sleep but what about the quality because i think that's another thing right it's like people's quality of sleep sometimes people will say you know oh i i I do sleep for that long but i still wake up exhausted and also i know through you know a lot of the things that i've read that quality of sleep is there's a lot of variables right whether that is caffeine or light or you know so what do you think about the quality definitely probably um Your own perception of how you're sleeping is probably the most important thing.
0: You are the only one who knows what the impact is on you the next day. Um, And you will probably know that regardless of how many hours of sleep, if you have very broken sleep, you'll still feel wretched the next day. So sleep quality, sleeping ideally in a big long block because your sleep changes through the night. You have these different sleep cycles. So good quality sleep means that you're cycling through maybe uh, four or five different sleep cycles during the night. Um, Um, all of which uh, have slightly different ingredients for making you feel good the next day. Um, So how can you ensure that you have really good quality sleep? Um, Light, as we've already mentioned, if you have background lights, uh, if you are sleeping next to electric lights and you don't have blackout blinds, it's very subtle but it will actually interfere with the quality of your sleep there was a paper that came out last week which actually suggested that people who sleep either with um, a a nightlight or the tv on on the background over time over five years they were actually at greater risk of weight gain and one of the theories is that having light exposure during the night can kind of interfere with your ability to sleep deeply Um, routine as we've mentioned is supremely important for the quality of your sleep there have been studies which have looked at people who had the same amount of sleep these were students naturally very few of them had a really great kind of routine they were mainly kind of chopping and changing their sleep habits during the week the ones who were able to stick to a routine had better results at university they were better able to concentrate um, and better able to remember things uh, so Routine, trying to stick to the same pattern of sleep seven days a week uh, within an hour or so. Um, avoiding light exposure, ideally at least in the hour before you go to bed, but even a couple of hours before you go to bed. After after sunset, you can kind of turn down dimmer switches, put on table lights, um, avoid digital stuff if you can. Um, and actually not eating for the couple of hours before you go to bed there's a growing interest in this idea of sort of time restricted eating so we give our guts time to recover overnight Um, and so if you can avoid eating after seven o'clock at night the chances are you're going to start to feel weary by half past nine ten o'clock. So that's Um, when you
1: grab a snack. (laughs) So either you grab a snack
0: which then sends this strong alerting signal it means that you're eating at a time of day when your body is really not ready for it you're more likely to then uh, store that energy as fat Mm -hmm. uh, or it's just kind of hangs around in the bloodstream as glucose because the body isn't processing it very well. Um, So actually just just go to sleep. Yeah, it's, I'm only saying that myself. <laughs> That's
1: something I do. So basically I feel like, so i read something recently about this with, uh, it was about intermittent fasting and about rest and digesting. Yeah, give your body maybe 12 to 15 hours of no food. And I was like, oh my goodness, because for me the evening, I think is when I snack most in the entire day. Like I love to, you know, just graze and have something to eat, have a nice hot drink. And like, I know that the whole like not eating after seven is advised by loads of different people, but I don't know why I find that one so tricky.
0: Well, you probably have a very fast metabolism as well. You're doing loads of things during the day and it's actually no good trying to sleep when you're hungry. So, you know, sleep, you've got to be comfortable. Um, So if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, that is going to interfere with your sleep. Um, Psychologically, I think you've also got to be ready for sleep. So there's, I always really recommend a kind of a wind down period before bed um, where you're just putting aside all the stuff you have to do most of us get through our day and we're kind of like bam 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 I've got to achieve this Um, but you've got to set aside some time in the day whether it's just before bed or maybe halfway through the day where you literally just let go just rest allow yourself to breathe um and if you make that time before bed makes you real set up for the next day so you know you you lock up the house if things feel secure you maybe tidy your bedroom you put out your clothes for the next day you've got your lunch ready whatever it is that you need So that your brain knows it doesn't have anything to worry about for tomorrow. Um, And I always recommend that people keep a piece of paper and a pencil by their bed. And just if there's stuff that's on your mind, write it down before you go to bed. And then when those thoughts pop into your head, just tell yourself it's on the page. Don't need to think about it now. And just let it go.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that's really useful and powerful and something that I tend to do. I just write a to-do list, as you said. And sometimes it's just loads of things because then I'm like, I know I'm not going to forget them because they're written down on that piece of paper. And I also feel like I just, I don't know, it's just a nice way to kind of empty my mind, empty my brain before I get into bed. So you mentioned very briefly, just a, a bit ago about naps. I think I heard the word and I was like, "Oh, I know that, as I said, I put out on Instagram and I had a few questions and some of the questions were about naps. And I feel like naps are quite divisive. It's either like, yes, they're amazing power naps. They charge you up. Or it's like, no, if you're needing to nap during the day, then you're not getting enough sleep at night. So Sophie, what <laughs> it, which one is it? <laughs> Depends who you are. So there's definitely some science backing off in, in both ways. So, um,
0: there are studies which are done on people who routinely nap that show that a nap particularly in what we call the circadian low so there is this period of time after lunch between about 1 and 3 p.m. where our body naturally has a bit of a dip in alertness and this doesn't have to be anything to do with having had a big lunch it's just naturally the the signals of alerting from the body are a little bit lower and it might sort of spring from uh, when as humans we lived by by the equator and really hot midday sun it wasn't very sensible to kind of Be super active. So things just calm down a little bit, you know, natural siesta time. Um, So that is a good time for a nap if you're a napper. Um, Now, for most of us, if we don't actually feel tired, maybe you don't need a nap. But if your body clock is kind of saying to you, I cannot keep my eyes open, my options are have a cup of coffee, go outside into the natural sunlight, maybe have a chat to people, all of those things naturally make you feel more alert. Um, but if your eyelids are starting to close, you're somewhere safe that you can actually have a nap, a 15 to 20 minute power nap can really help to kind of pep up your levels of alertness. Um, so I said before, we, we sleep in sleep cycles. So If you're keeping your nap short, about 15 to 20 minutes, you only get into the first and second stages of sleep, so you can wake up quite quickly. But after about half an hour, the odds are you'll probably get into deep sleep, slow-wave sleep. And this is very juicy, physically restorative, really good for memory, But if you are then woken up, you get incredibly groggy. You suffer from this thing called sleep inertia. And that's when, you know, it can take more than an hour for you to actually be on the ball again. So, you know, if you're going to drive a car or something, it's really not sensible when you've woken up from sort of sleep inertia, from deep sleep. So that's why power naps tend to be kind of coined at this short and sweet interval. If, however, you are someone who is really struggling to sleep at night, so if you have insomnia, very often sleep experts will recommend that you don't nap. And that's partly because of that sleep drive I mentioned earlier. If you have a long nap in the middle of the day or perhaps even later in the day, 4 or 5 p.m., You're resetting your sleep drive. That adenosine kind of breaks down. And when it comes to getting into bed, you don't feel that drive to sleep. So it's kind of about being tactical. Um, Just like sleep time and wait time, if you can make a routine nap time where it's kind of safe to nap, then that could be great. I think for parents or shift workers, napping can be essential because if you're not getting your seven hours sleep at night, you have to get it another time. And in that case, I would absolutely recommend that actually you make time for an app.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really useful what you said about the time because I think often people say that to me they go oh if I have a nap I wake up and feel awful but as you said maybe it's just too long whereas actually the whole point of you know the power nap it has to be short so yeah maximum what twenty minutes and I really want to get into this like detail of these different sleep phases so how many are there and what's the difference between them? Okay, so um, it's quite simple. Uh, there's three non-REM
0: or non-rapid eye movement stages and one REM or rapid eye movement stage. Um, so, stage one sleep. Uh, this is for those people who are kind of listening to this podcast late at night, maybe their head is kind of dropping onto their chin uh, and they're slightly sleepy. That's stage one sleep. It's very easy to wake up. Uh, that's when you're a little bit drowsy. Stage two is really the first stage of true sleep. So, your heart rate starts to go down, your body temperature starts to go down, your breathing rate starts to go down. Um, and it's a very restful period of sleep. We think that's quite good for uh, learning, for physical memories, for example. Um, and we spend probably half of our sleep time in stage two sleep and then if you're lucky you get into this deep slow wave sleep where the brain waves all across the brain start kind of coordinating in these slow rhythms and we're pretty sure that there's a lot of memory consolidation going on so we're moving short-term memories into long-term memory is definitely very good for physical growth and repair so we produce growth hormone during slow wave sleep and um, one of the reasons it's so important is to sort of you know prevent disease and we tend to get more of that slow wave sleep in the first part of the night so one of the reasons that you're less likely to wake up before kind of two o'clock in the morning is because you're getting much more of that deep slow wave sleep and then we cycle from slow wave sleep into REM sleep or dream sleep um, which is when you're kind of your eyes can kind of dart around but actually your body tends to be paralyzed because you don't want to be acting out your dreams and again lots of memory consolidation and pruning going on here to strengthen important memories Um, and we think it's pretty good for creativity Um, and we tend to get more of this REM sleep in the second half of the night so when you wake up in the second half of the night you're more likely to remember your dreams and each one of these kind of cycles takes about 90 minutes to 110 minutes Um, so we have several three four five during the night
1: and it's worse to wake up in the deep bit. But actually, as you said, if you're waking up maybe in the last bit in the, in the REM sleep, is that when sometimes you do remember your dreams? Because you wake up and you're kind of in the dream.
0: Yeah, we, we think that's, uh, that's what's happened when you've woken up during REM sleep. So everybody probably dreams. Um, we can't actually function very well at all without REM sleep. REM is also very important for kind of uh, emotional balance. Um, but if don't worry, if you don't think that you're dreaming, um, it's just that you're not remembering them.
1: Yeah, that's what I heard, right? But it's interesting how sometimes you'll go for a long time without having a dream that you remember, and then sometimes you seem to dream all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we... there's so much that we don't know about dreams.
0: Um, you know, some people get very excited about lucid dreaming where they can actually influence the content of their dream.
1: I have that sometimes. I have
0: been trying to have more flying dreams for a long time right. and failed miserably. I love a
1: good flying dream. I don't think I've ever had a flying dream. Oh my ever. gosh. The but best But I do dreams have lucid ever. dreams because sometimes I dream and then when I wake up, I go back to sleep. But I go back into the dream. Do you know what I mean? Like I nice. know that I'm consciously going back into the dream, but I'm actually asleep. And I love it. It's the best. Yeah. um, I I can't tell you what the scientific value of that, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. What about, this has just popped into my mind, actually. I didn't actually plan to ask you about this, but what about, what's it called? Um, Oh, and I want to say sleep apnea. It's not that. What's the condition when you, you kind of sleep paralysis? Because I've experienced that before, I think. And it was so weird and terrifying. And for anyone listening, who's ever experienced it essentially, or hasn't, essentially like I was awake, like my mind was awake, but my body was completely like so like paralyzing like sleep. And I remember being like, I couldn't do anything. Like, I couldn't move. And it, I couldn't even open my mouth. Like it was so weird. Like, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's really scary. So, I mentioned that during REM sleep, usually there's
0: a switch in your brain that kind of stops you from moving. Mm. Um, but essentially, your waking processes haven't fully kicked in and sleep paralysis. So, your eyes are open and you're conscious. Yeah. Uh, But that switch into your kind of the control of your muscles, the voluntary control, hasn't started yet. Um, The good news on sleep paralysis, although it's incredibly scary in the moment, um, as far as I know, there's no records of that actually being prolonged. Um, So if you do experience that situation, just breathe.
1: Just, just, it's going to be fine. (laughs) You're
0: not going to get stuck there.
1: Yeah, gosh. I think it's only happened maybe once. I think, yeah, once. And I was laid on my front and I was literally just like, this is so weird. I didn't know if I was having a nightmare, but then, yeah, anyway just a just a random thought but I very, also, what's going on very
0: often things like that and also nightmares can become more common when you're not actually getting enough sleep so if your sleep has a, your sleep patterns are a little bit more haphazard you're putting yourself at slightly greater risk of some of these kind of unusual parasomnias as we call them kind of weird weird things that happen at night
1: Mm, gosh okay and something else that I really wanted to talk to you about today because I think maybe it's not talked about enough or maybe it's still a kind of a stigma around it maybe there should be I don't know but I'm gonna ask you is about medication when it comes to sleep so I think we discussed before actually you and I about you know maybe there's an experience, maybe there's something going on in your life you might have experienced a trauma or grief or something that has interrupted your sleep like never before and you cannot sleep and for anyone who suffers insomnia it can be you know, awful. And also if you still have to function, if you have children to look after or you have a job to go to after a certain amount of nights, you just start to think, I can't actually go on like this anymore. Like I can't look at the clock all night. And so you might, you know, go to the GP or you might just go to boots and buy, you know, sleeping tablets. What would your, what, what do sleeping tablets do? Like what's the kind of, cause I've heard that, you know, that you should only use them in short term and they can have very bad, you know, long-term side effects and this and that. So I think that also could, probably scare people from using them or if they are taking them they might panic thinking oh my goodness I'm taking this and therefore you know I'm doing lots of damage. I'm really glad you've asked this and I I really like the way that you introduced it because I think you've
0: got to understand that in that frame of mind I know that people are absolutely desperate insomnia is incredibly isolating i mean it's horrible during the night but it's horrible during the day you can't function and you're so anxious about not sleeping that it can really start to interfere with as you say the the things that you need to get done so if you are in that situation absolutely go and talk to your doctor about it but they will be quite reluctant to prescribe you sleeping pills because as you've said they have some pretty nasty side effects um so what they actually do is they sedate your mind. So they help with that initial kind of switching off the racing mind, the kind of hyper arousal that you get with insomnia, where your, your sympathetic nervous system, uh, your kind of fight or flight stress response is kind of dialed up and it's very difficult for you to relax Um, so they help with that relaxation process to kind of get you off to sleep Um, but there is evidence that they actually interfere with those natural sleep cycles that I talked about so your sleep architecture is slightly different you're not quite getting the same restorative power of natural sleep so if you take them long term there is evidence that they are associated with an increased risk of cancer depression um, falls next day tolerance this terrible thing called rebound insomnia where actually when you've been taking them for a while and then you suddenly stop taking them it makes your sleep worse so not only do you need to talk to your doctor about starting them in the first place but also if you are taking sleeping pills talk to your doctor about tapering them down so that you're actually reducing your dosage gradually um so i i don't want to demonize sleeping pills but actually the evidence-based recommendation for the first line therapy for insomnia is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is basically a toolkit of ingredients, um, which involves some cognitive t- techniques to stop your mind from racing, but also behavioral strategies. So lots of things we've already talked about, have about having a routine and controlling your exposure to light, but there are some quite kind of full-on ones as well. Um, so people might have come across this idea of sleep restriction, which sounds incredibly counterintuitive for someone who's very, very short of sleep. But the idea here is that When you're so anxious about sleep, you quite often will end up saying, well, I need sleep, I'm going to go to bed early. So even though your natural time to sleep might be 11, you've been getting into bed at 9 thinking, I need to sleep. So you just lie there for hours unable to sleep. The idea in sleep restriction is you look at how much sleep on average you've been getting and it might only be about five or six hours. You say, okay, well, your sleep window is six hours, but instead of going to bed at 9 p.m. or 11 p.m., you're going to go to bed at 1 p.m. So you're going to try and kind of keep yourself awake, but then set the alarm for 7 p.m. if you're, you've got a six hour sleep window and you're going to be so tired. There's going to be more of this sleep drive that has built up more of this adrenaline, uh, adenosine making you drowsy that actually you'll probably start sleeping through the night and so for people who've got very broken sleep where they wake up repeatedly using sleep restriction can actually be quite helpful to combat that and then slowly you can increase the size of your sleep window so that you're back up to seven hours or whatever's natural for you
1: hmm. yeah that's really interesting that's good to hear and thanks for sharing that on the uh on the medication as well another thing i want to talk about is exercise in relation to sleep so i'm a big advocate for exercise i love to run i love kind of you know most things that are active actually. But um, recently I've you know, been reading more about the kinds of exercise that we should do in the time. So for example, things like HIIT training, spin classes, things that really pump the blood, get your adrenaline, cortisol, all of that, um, versus things like yoga or walking. And so is there something that would be an exercise that's better for sleep and also a time of day that is better? Uh, yes. Um,
0: so exactly as you said, if you are doing a hit class just before bed, um, for some people they're going to find it really quite. Uh, difficult to get to sleep afterwards. Two reasons, really. One of them is actually, as you say, the adrenaline, the excitement. Maybe you've been um, playing a match, uh, and you really had to get your body going. It can take a good two hours just to calm down. Um, in order to sleep, your body temperature has to cool, and some people find it easier than others to actually regulate their body temperature. For some people, it can take several hours for their body temperature to come back down after they've kind of really kind of um, got super excited and done lots of exercise so in general the advice is actually for sleep um morning exercise can be really really helpful um but in the morning just be aware that your body temperature is still kind of a little bit low a lot of us are a little bit groggy so still doing a high intensity exercise class first thing in the morning you're actually at more risk of injury so just make sure that you spend the time warming up before you throw yourself into something Um, our general circadian pattern is actually that our speed strength and endurance tends to increase in the afternoon so most uh, world records tend to get broken between sort of three and five p.m. in the afternoon so actually if you want your pb um, then it might be that the afternoon is the best time for exercise Uh, but in general just exercise is great there's definitely a positive relationship between exercise and sleep Um, again you can kind of get this virtuous
1: cycle you sleep well you feel like exercising and that sets you up uh, for the next day yeah. So again, you see the world is working against us because as you said, one, when you were saying about having a nap at like one, two, three o'clock, most people are probably sitting at a desk. It's like, I'll just shut your laptop and have a little nap on your desk. And then also with the exercise thing, the same thing. I, I I went for a run a few, it was a few weeks ago in the afternoon I never run in the afternoon I usually run in the morning at about 5 30 and I went out and I, I thought it was because of the lunch that I'd had but I felt like I was literally like rocket fueled because I was like oh my gosh I was running like my normal route I was running faster but it felt easier and I was like oh maybe there's something in this afternoon running but I just can't my lifestyle doesn't allow me to run every afternoon do you know what I mean just just save that for, for your PB yes. um, for, for the next marathon. For the next world record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am going to ask you some of the questions that came in yesterday before we get on to the Power Hour. So... One was, well, there's quite a few actually from parents. So that kind of comes up a lot. So it's like, what can parents do if their kids wake up in the night, if their kids wake up early, if their kids won't get to bed, it was kind of one lady was saying, you know, I don't want to kind of blame the kids, but she was like equally, how am I ever going to get them to sleep so that I can sleep? So any tips for helping children sleep? So in general, all the things that are great for kids are great for adults as well.
0: And I remember when we were talking at Women's Health, and you were saying, "Well, I did all these things for Jude, and actually, those things are great for you as well." So, for example, having blackout blinds in the bedroom—that's um, going to help to uh, help not only get to sleep, but also reduce the number of awakenings during the night because there's there's less light in the room. Um, but for mostly, it is again about routine. But for kids, um, you know, you will know that it's no good just saying, uh, "Okay, it's bedtime now." like, you need to set this up. There's a whole lead time that goes into getting to bed and f- being physically and psychologically ready for bed. Um, so having a sequence can be really helpful. You can even write that sequence out, have it on a door chart or whatever, and say, well, you know, what what comes next? Um, and so long as it ends with something that they like, so maybe the reward for having done your teeth, had a bath, uh, put your pyjamas on, is playing with Lego in your room or having a book before bed... Um, you just want to make sure that this routine is something that you stick to. Ideally, at the same time, and that uh, both parents, if there are two parents, are doing the same thing, so that it manages expectations psychologically. Uh, your child is ready for bed, and if they if if they break that, you know, if they can't get to sleep, the alternative options have to be incredibly boring. So if you put them into bed and you've closed the door and you said goodnight and they come back downstairs again, it's about being really firm that, you know, Ideally, you want to take them back to bed. You certainly don't want them sitting there watching Game of Thrones with you um, no because way. they're going to take take that as a treat.
1: Um, it's also probably or going to scare them. Terrifying. Yeah, so not age appropriate. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just just making sure that the alternatives are super boring. OK, like you could do some homework or do some spellings. Like, oh, actually, I'm really tired now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about in the morning, early risers? Because that's the thing that people say to me. They'll say I haven't had a lion in five years oh. because the kids are just early risers.
0: Yeah, that's a tough one because our, our body clocks do change um, during our lifetimes. So typically kids um, and also elderly people tend to have a body clock which is shifted forward a little bit so they'll wake up earlier. However, late teens and early 20s, you, your body clock tends to shift back a little bit. So naturally you'll be wanting to stay awake later at night and wake up later, which can cause more of a social jet lag problem. Um, but yeah, so for young kids who, who, are, who are waking up... Um, have you come across the grow clocks? I, I know think my, I've heard of them, I, yeah. I'm not a parent, but my, my brother swears by them. So the kind of uh, four-year-old kept getting up really, really early. But this is a clock that sort of lights up at different times. And so at 7 a.m., or what the time is, um, that you kind of encourage them to get out of bed, the, the lights change. They don't have to be able to read a clock, but they can actually see, oh, there's a sunlight on my grow clock, so I know it's okay to get out of bed. And just kind of coaxing them into if you haven't hit the sunlight on your clock then you know stay stay in in your room and you know it it, nobody should be forcing anyone to sleep but if you kind of say something if you're really not tired if you want to play in your room that's okay it depends on the age of the child obviously yeah
1: yeah great okay well I'm sure that would be really really useful okay so another question that came was about shift working and also working on you know having different sleep pattern to your partner maybe so any advice for either people I guess they're different questions but do you know what I mean if they have uh, either to work shifts or if their partner maybe does yeah I mean shift work is uh really tricky you are
0: having to operate at the time of day when um would take night shifts as an example uh, where your body clock is telling you everything is telling you to sleep um And so whatever you do, you're putting more pressure on your body. So your metabolism in particular overnight is expecting you to sleep. So if you take a very kind of high carb meal, you're putting huge pressure on your ability to process that food. So we know that night shift workers are at higher risk of weight gain, also diabetes, heart disease and so on. Um, So a lot of it is actually about just being very healthy looking after your body in other ways so that you can cope better with the stresses of having to stay awake at different times Um, so regular exercise um, eating healthy foods preparing um, preparing for a night shift so having a nap beforehand you can do this thing called prophylactic napping so you are actually preparing by front weighting your sleep so that you're better able to cope with a sleep challenge we do build up a sleep debt the more time that we've had short sleep but we can kind of put some in the bank to help us prepare and obviously you can also uh, have recovery naps afterwards think about light Um, so when you are on the night shift and you need to stay awake make sure you're in very well lit areas And you can actually buy, you know, uh, special sort of daylight clocks, which simulate brighter light than you would normally have in an office environment. Um, On your way home from night shift, however, wear dark glasses. You can also get blue light filter sunglasses so that you're avoiding kind of queuing up too much light and alerting when actually the first thing that you want to do is go home and sleep Um, and during a night shift if you do get super sleepy you know talk to your colleagues hopefully there's somebody else there hopefully you can have a 15 to 20 minute power nap if you really can't keep your eyes open Um, If you have to use caffeine, use it sparingly, you know, use it when you really need it. It's about being strategic. If you're using caffeine to fuel your whole way through the night shift, you're also going to screw up your sleep the next day, making it very, very difficult to recover. So I would yeah, use sparingly.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we've kind of touched on caffeine a little bit, but actually when you just said then use it sparingly, you know, it's one of them things, as you said, about kids and adults, you know, the things that you would allow your children to do or not do. It's so different when it comes to your adults. Do you know what I mean? So I think with caffeine you know, most people probably who listen to this show are like, you know, they either drink one coffee a day, two coffees a day, three coffees a day. I've heard people that say to me, they're like, Adrienne, nobody, I don't know a person that doesn't drink coffee. Like everyone drinks coffee. So if that is the case, and as a nation, if we're all coffee drinkers yep. and we all go to bed and we all go to sleep, apparently, is it such a big deal? Like, why is it, you know what I mean? I, I tend to like villainize coffee or whatever, but is it, Yeah, how's everyone functioning full of caffeine? in awe
0: of caffeine-free people. Um, I will be completely honest. I love coffee, Um, uh, but I love decaf coffee. I mean, it's... But it still has caffeine, right? It has a little bit, but in order to be decaf, it still has to be 97% caffeine-free. So so typically, if you have a cup of filter coffee, for example, um, it might have 100 milligrams of caffeine in it, whereas a decaf will have maybe nine.
1: Okay. So, if, so oh, I'm sorry, that's, this that's is, more than 97%. It's a different, different this is size of my Coke. mind. This is blowing my mind because, and people are going to, people who know me might even call me up on this. Cause I've been saying to people for ages, guys, decaf is not no calf. I'm like, then it would say caffeine free. I'm like, it's just less caffeine thinking that it was like, I don't know, 70%. I'm like, it's just less, but it's actually quite a lot. It, less.
0: it should be an awful lot less. I mean, it obviously depends on the brand. Yeah. Um, but according to uh the food standards agency you know we shouldn't be having more than about 400 milligrams of caffeine a day so if you're it totally depends on the size of the mug and how strong you make your coffee but filter coffee might be 100 uh, milligrams um i think decaf coffee should be less than 10
1: oh my gosh this is a game changer i'm gonna go and order decaf (laughs) latte right now (laughs)
0: <laughs> i'm really gonna get get called out for this but yeah that's uh, my understanding is that it has to be really quite very low caffeine but there's there's lots of other things that have um a small amount of caffeine so um i mean tea has less caffeine than coffee but it's still pretty it's significant still lot, yeah. um uh dark chocolate still has caffeine in so the people who love their dark chocolate before bed i mean it's a small amount of caffeine but it all adds up
1: Okay. Yeah. What, what was the other thing with caffeine? Coca Cola. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, and energy drinks. I think uh, Red Bull has like
1: eighty milligrams, something like that. But can caffeine actually also, as well, enhance um, sports performance? Because a lot of the like energy gels and energy drinks and whatever before races say three hundred milligrams of caffeine, and apparently the caffeine's good for performance. Yeah, so this is where I'm saying
0: use it to strategically
1: because it does definitely kind of get your
0: metabolism going and actually it can help with focus and concentration. But I think the problem... Is that a lot of these gels are not designed to be taken one after the other, um, and actually, but people think, oh well, I'm a bit tired. I'll take some more. And you want more glucose, you want more energy, but you don't really don't necessarily want more caffeine. And I've spoken to a lot of professional sports people who have terrible problems sleeping after an event um, because you know maybe they've they've used caffeine during the day, um, they've had some of these gels, and they just cannot switch off at night. Um, and so in those circumstances. You know, reducing the caffeine content is also important, but also really actively relaxing I mean I've kind of gone off the word relaxation because it sounds so lame as if you're not doing anything but actually the process of winding down your body um, is an active process so if you're doing mindfulness meditation for example you have to concentrate it's no good to just sit there Um, it takes focus or there's an exercise called progressive muscle relaxation which is quite good particularly I think if you're if you're physically sort of aroused um, and what you do uh, you can start maybe in your toes and just scrunch up your toes for about three seconds as hard as you can and then relax them and feel the difference between that sort of relaxed and the tension and slowly but surely work your way up all the muscle groups in your body and you might actually find you fall asleep during this process but sort of finishing off with the eyes and you can kind of scrunch them up and then relax them and just delight in this sensation of of sort of relaxation, stress-free, but it takes an effort. Just lying there thinking, I wish I was asleep, is not the same thing as proactively relaxing. I love that, I love that relaxation tip,
1: thank you. Okay, so we should probably talk a little bit about the power hour. I have a few questions which are about mornings and how can I wake up and join the power hour crew. So essentially, I encourage people to get up early and to take one hour of their day, which I call the power hour to give to themselves you know before the world needs them before everything else work emails kids um so yeah i encourage people to carve out this one hour in the day and dedicate it to yourself but people are like yeah but i'm really tired and i don't want to get up at five so sophie i'd love to know at what time you wake up in the morning do you have a morning routine i mean you're the sleep scientist so (laughs) give it to us i'd be in trouble if i didn't um yeah i'm a
0: morning exerciser Um, i'm not a runner Um, i've had a lot of injuries in my time so i've switched my exercise I do alternate kind of yoga and swimming Um, so I tend to get up between 6 and 630 and try and make a a yoga class at 645 I feel quite virtuous Um, I still struggle to get out of bed um, but I do use um, a dawn simulation alarm clock I think one of your other guests mentioned this yeah Um, and so Half an hour before you wake up, it starts to kind of emit light um, because I have blackout blinds, so I kind of need that light uh, to prompt the body that it's time to wake up. And I still feel often a little bit groggy when I wake up, even naturally that's fine don't worry if you're not bounding out of bed with tons of energy it's sleep inertia it will pass Um, so I know that I maybe have to lie lie there in bed for about 10 minutes and then you know my clothes are ready to go Um, I will get up and go and then I have breakfast after that so I try not to eat anything until after I've done my little morning routine workout
1: nice so you move first and then refuel afterwards yeah because that's also something that comes up I mean we can't cover everything today it would be great if we could but breakfast that comes up a lot because some people open their eyes and instantly the first thing they pretty much do is either reach for a mug or reach for a bowl it's like what am I having for my breakfast and then other people say oh I can't eat in the morning so I think water definitely you're dehydrated
0: um over the night Uh, But there is some evidence that eating immediately as soon as you wake up, you've got a lot of cortisol in your bloodstream when you first wake up, um, just naturally. That's what wakes you up, gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, And I think eating as well is kind of an added sort of stressor on the body. Um, So you might want to give it half an hour or so before you consume that first meal. Um, But experiment with what works for you I, I did want to mention one brilliant piece of research which yeah. just ties in so ni- nicely with the power hour um which was published last week and there was this group that were basically interested in can a night owl become an early bird so even though our chronotype which is the time that we naturally kind of wake up fall asleep is genetically influenced we can also influence our chronotype with the uh environment that we're in and the behaviours that we exhibit. So in this particular experiment, they got a bunch of natural night owls who are going to bed, you know, after midnight, probably getting up at maybe 10 AM. And what they did is they just said for three weeks, you're gonna set your alarm for two hours earlier. You're gonna get out of bed, get as much natural light as you can, you're gonna exercise in the morning, you're gonna try and eat lunch at the same day at the same time each day and you're not gonna eat after 7 p.m. in the evening and you're gonna consciously try and avoid bright lights in the two hours before you go to bed. And after three weeks, uh, the results were that they were feeling more positive. They were kind of quite happy and content that they were waking up earlier. And their cognitive function, particularly in the morning, was quite drastically improved. So the experiment suggests that actually if we stick to the routine, if we use these cues of light, of food, of exercise... Then actually, we are able to influence our body clock, and we can all enjoy power hour.
1: Yes, thank you, Sophie. I love that. So everyone can enjoy <laughs> the power really hour. Want to. Yes, I love that. No, it's great to hear because I think often people go, "Oh, you're just lucky, Jen. You just like getting up early." And but it's didn't, like, didn't you say that this didn't come naturally yeah, to you? So this yeah. is something that you've changed. Yeah, for sure. Like now, it's so natural for me. And actually, I would probably miss that time now if I didn't have it. But yeah, for sure, I didn't used to jump out of bed early. I used to kind of yeah probably wait for Jude's little pitter-patter of his feet to come in and I'd be like oh just wake up mummy!" and I used to then do everything for him and then start everything for myself later and yeah it really truly has been life-changing in so many ways as you said about the cognitive function waking up and being so productive and I can honestly if I pull out you know a notebook a piece of paper a laptop I can do so much good work as well, not just like, you know, it's like my best work almost, dedicated, focused. It's like a flow, it just comes out. I'm like, go, 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 go. And then I'm like, in 90 minutes, I've done more work than I would probably take me about four hours later on in the day, in the afternoon. And it's not just because of, you know, the external uh, distractions, but actually just, I don't know, the focus. Yeah, and, and that's that's natural. And I think until you've experimented with that, it's very difficult
0: to believe. Um, I know a lot of people who though have experimented with the times of day that they do things. So I know that if I've got to write something, if I try and do it after lunch, it's not going to happen. Like I have to do something which doesn't take as much sort of cognitive load. Um, so I might read or I might do emails. Um, but actually, if I really want to focus, it's those morning hours where I'm going to be most productive. Um, if you're a natural night owl, it might be be that you feel more productive between sort of the hours of five and seven or even later at night and this is often kind of penalized in a workplace setting because everyone else has gone home and you are on fire um that might well be where your genetic clock is telling you to work but I think this study really suggests that if you do want to
1: try and change that, it is within your power. Mm, yeah, and so do you have a power hour challenge for us this week, maybe sleep related, <laughs> for everyone to get on board with this power hour?
0: Well, we, we talked a little bit earlier about this, this idea of having a kind of uh, a wind down hour and so my challenge is really around uh, a power down hour um, so the first thing I would like everyone to do is to try and think of their week ahead now if you're a planner you probably plan you know um, uh, your kids schedule your work maybe the meals that you're going to cook maybe your shopping but I'm almost certain that you don't actually plan your sleep window and so think about the week ahead okay which are the nights where actually it's going to be difficult to sleep when might you need to get up early what is the time that you could wake up every day so that actually you're only moving your wake time by one to a maximum of two hours. So the first thing is to kind of think about that plan. Think about the morning plan and then the evening plan because evening is usually where things kind of go to pot. And my main recommendation is to set an alarm on your phone for when you want your power down hour to start so you can't possibly set an alarm for I'm going to sleep now it doesn't work like that but you can at least set a time when you're going to start preparing for bed Um, so set that alarm set the intention that you are going to go to sleep an hour later and that's when you start your kind of routine a number of rituals that you can repeat so that your body gets used to it um, so you're physically and mentally ready for bed so sort of plan out what that power down hour will consist of and experiment with it see whether you can stick to the power down hour for a week see whether it makes a difference I know when I first tried it I couldn't believe it when the alarm kind of went off and I'm like but but I'm in the middle of stuff and it really helps to prompt you to go oh but actually it's time it's getting late
1: yeah yeah I love that okay awesome so yeah please do get involved with the power hour challenge this week start set that alarm to switch off and start getting ready for bed and let us know how it goes let me know if you are sleeping better and joining and getting up early so Sophie where can people find you online I'm sure they're going to have lots of questions we didn't get to answer them all today um so I will be trying to answer the most
0: frequently asked questions around sleep on my website which is uh www.thesleepscientist.com um I'm also on LinkedIn um and I will try try and chase up on Instagram with anyone who has posted on your on your feed to answer okay. their questions
1: brilliant thank you so much and my closing question so which I asked every guest is all about time and it is what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you time has taught me an awful lot I'm still
0: learning um, this is actually slightly different from sleep but I was really trying to think what have I learned and what am I still learning and I would say that time has taught me that it's okay to ask for help I think um, I've always sort of prided myself on being independent go-getter and sometimes I've let things get on top of me when actually I could have just asked for help. And all the research on happiness says that if you help someone else, if you give something to someone else, it's hugely rewarding. So when you ask for help, you're not only helping yourself, but you're also giving a gift to someone else to help you. Um, so yeah, if there's something you can get help with,
1: then ask thank you so much and thank you so much for coming in today it's been wonderful i'm sure we could have yeah talked for at least another hour about sleep but i really really hope that that was useful and valuable to the listeners at home don't forget to rate and review you can rate and review us on itunes but also on spotify and acast as well thanks so much for listening thanks so thank you see ya